I remember the first girl I loved, or thought I loved. I met her at a church event in Northeast Ohio. She was from Ohio. I'd grown up in Pennsylvania prior to coming to Ohio State. Her grandparents lived close to my Pennsylvania home, so it was on a visit at the end of that same summer, if I remember correctly, that I told her I loved her at 16. I told her I would marry her if I had the chance. Yes, 16. I knew I had found love. I was certain. When we parted, I told her I would write. Then she went back home, and I forgot about her. <laughs> and I never wrote, not once. That was my so-called love. I broke her heart. And when I foolishly tried to mend it the following summer, she would not play the fool again. Yes, we can shake it off as youthful stupidity it was. But the truth of the matter is that love can have disguises. There are emotions, strong emotions, we can mistake love for. Seven years later, I fell for another girl. This one from California. Sing it with me. I wish they all could be California girls. I wish they all could be California girls. Right? I found one. My heart sped up around her. Literally, when she came into the room, her smile and personality lit up the room. Got to know her as a friend first, eventually told her I loved her and then committed my life to her before God and witnesses. And for the last 37 years, I have been loving her with emotions, with words, with actions. That's the real thing. Love can have disguises. Faith, too, can have disguises. Some people equate faith to a feeling of warm comfort. Others like the idea of faith. They liken it to goodness or positivity, but they never do anything to own or develop it within themselves. One of the most deceptive disguises is conflating the faith of a respected or influential leader with one's own. It's the coattail effect. I can ride on the faith of someone seemingly closer to God. As we will see in our passage this week, this can have disappointing or even tragic consequences. The kings who are the focus of these chapters illustrate this proverb, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Now we can escape this kind of peril by knowing what faith truly is. So, here is what we'll do this morning. First, we're going to take a 30,000-foot view at the four chapters that I've been assigned. And that way we can see the big movement and the direction of the storyline. Remember, spoiler alert, this is not a Hallmark movie. It's going to end in exile for God's people. So big picture first. Then secondly, we'll get more of a ground-level view, and we're going to focus on two kings. 
And then finally, we're going to finish with the death of Elisha and what God revealed through it. And that'll lead us into communion together. Let's pray. Father, you're here this morning. You're really here by your spirit. We can't see you, but we believe by faith you're here by your spirit. And we trust you, Father, that whether it's something that's a reminder of a truth or whether it's something brand new that spills into our hearts, that we would receive this morning what the spirit desires freely to give us. Father, if there's someone not this morning that's here that does not know you yet, with whom your spirit does not live in, may you open their heart this morning to receive Jesus and to allow the Holy Spirit to come into their lives. Thank you, Father. You said if we ask, you will give. You're a good and kind and generous Father, and you freely give the Holy Spirit and his gifts to us. We pray this morning, Father, that whoever needs comfort would receive comfort. Whoever needs a fresh sense of urgency would receive a fresh sense of urgency, that whoever needs affirmation would receive affirmation, that whoever needs healing, whether it's emotionally with anxiety or whether it's physical healing, may they receive healing this morning. Father, thank you for the power, the, the value, the preciousness of your words. They're, your words are so loving and kind. Your words are so just and right. They're so clear, they're so convincing, they're so true. May we come into a deeper relationship with you this morning, Father, expressed through the, the medium of your word. We ask all this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Okay, for this flyover, you might want to have your Bible open. I'm going to refer to the verses. We'll take a few minutes on it. We're going to begin in page 317. And I did prepare a slide for you to help you a little bit to see Judah's kings and Israel's kings. Um, you'll notice some same names. Um, you just imagine if our presidents were not named George, Barack, Donald, or Joe, but rather they were named Jim, Jimmy, James, Jamie, and Jameson. <laughs> That's the picture here, why it's so hard to keep straight. But this might help you just to, just to see the and we're going to focus on actually both of the Jehoashes, or the shortened version, Joash. We learned last week through Nick's message that Jehu led a successful coup in Israel to depose Jezebel. Remember, Israel's a northern kingdom. And in verse 1 of chapter 11, there's another queen, Athaliah. She sees power in Judah. Remember, that's the southern kingdom. And she did it by murdering the royal family. That included her grandchildren. Nice woman. Athaliah was the daughter of Israel's Ahab, who lived in Judah because of an ill-advised treaty made earlier. But Athaliah did not get the job completely done, and it would come back to haunt her. In verse 2, 
We're in chapter 11. She missed one. The wife of a godly priest named Jehosheba saved the life of a nursing baby named Joash. And she hid him in the temple for seven years, knowing Athaliah would never show up there. Joash was the rightful king. He was a descendant of King David. Yes, that's the lineage through which God had promised the Messiah would come. And at this moment, the promise of a future Messiah was hanging by threads. Athaliah threatened to steal Christmas. When Joash was seven, Jehoiada, the priest and husband of Jehosheba, organized a military guard, verse 4, and brought Joash out in the open, presented him to the people, and declared him king at seven years old. Athaliah would not sit idly by to see her power slip from her hands. When she discovered what was happening, this right-side-up coup or revolution, she runs out into the street screaming, ironically, treason, treason. But no one fell in behind her, and she was executed for her capital crimes, and Joash became king. And Jehoiada gave to Joash the covenant, the law, the testimony, and it's renewed, this covenant between the king and the people, between the people and God is renewed, and many revival breaks out. The people tear down the temple of Baal, and they bring to justice the priest of Baal. All the people celebrated and sang, indeed, it was a wicked witch of the West is dead moment. There was calm, there was peace, and Joash would reign in Jerusalem for 40 years. He's off to a great start. Chapter 12, Joash sets out to repair the temple. Verse 4, now about 140 years old. It's a good work. In the ancient world, the condition of the temple reflected the priority placed on worship by that community. Yet in Joash's case, it took a long time. It took 23 years for him to actually get around to making sure it happened. Next in chapter 12, we learn that Haziel, king of Aram, attacked Jerusalem, verse 17. And there is no record of Joash seeking the Lord and what to do. He simply bribes his way out of it. And then in the end, strangely, Joash is assassinated by his own officials. And we'll learn the rest of the story here in just a few moments. Chapter 13. Attention now shifts to Israel. J. Hoahaz, son of Jehu, becomes king, verse 1. And like all the kings before him, his report card is not good. He does evil in the sight of the Lord. But unlike Joash, when the king of Aram attacks again, he pays him no tribute, but Jehoahaz surprisingly turns to the Lord, and God listens and feels compassion for his people and delivers them. But that deliverance and answered prayer did not cause the people to turn back. They continued in their unbelief and sin. And then Jehoahaz dies, and his son, Jehoahash, becomes king. Verse 10, and after reigning 16 years, he has the same bad report card. And then his death is recorded 
But the writer goes to a flashback. And surprise, surprise, we meet Elisha again. Remember Elisha, the prophet? We have not heard from him at this point in the narrative for about 50 years. And when we meet him, he is near death. But his death will come with a twist that only God could orchestrate. Finally, chapter 14 in our flyover. Attention that goes back to Judah. Judah, how you doing with the names, by the way? Doing all right? Keeping it clear? Jim, Jamie, Jameson? Attention goes back to Judah, and Amaziah, son of Joash, becomes king, verse 1. Uh, he's got a partially good scorecard, but it was compromised. It was half-hearted. He was arrogant, and his arrogance leads him to, into a civil war with the aforesaid Jehoash. Yes, civil war between God's people, north versus south, and Amaziah lost badly. And then in the last section, we meet Jeroboam II, the son of Jehoash, who reigned for 41 years. This guy, Jeroboam II, reigned for 41 years in Israel. Spiritually, he was not better than any other king, but God gave the people a long season of peace and growth and stability. And we learn in verses 26 and 27, it was because of his compassion. It was because of his promises. The people didn't deserve it. It was because of grace. He was determined to keep his covenant. And Jeroboam II was, guess what? The fourth in the line of Jehu, Jehu's line of Israel's kings, just as God had promised him. But then after him, sheer chaos broke out. And indeed, Israel became a banana republic, just like its neighbors are perhaps even worse as political assassinations and coups now came with rapid succession. Okay, that gives you a flyover of chapters 11 through 14, if you could sort of make sense of all that. There were many revivals, there were moments of turning to Yahweh, but the overall trajectory remains a downward trend. So what I wanna do now is focus on two of these kings, two of them, okay? Just two of them, and they're both named Jehoash, Jehoash, Jehoash. Jim, whatever. <laughs> and we're going to look at first the king of Judah. So turn with me, please, to 2 Chronicles 24, it's page 375, for a more detailed account. Thankfully, Chronicles gives us more of the behind the scenes. Kings is a summary. Chronicles gives us more detail. And I'm going to start reading in verse 17. Again, this is our king, Jehoash, on Judah's side. Verse 17. After the death of Jehoiada, the officials of Judah came and paid homage to the king, Joash, and he listened to them. They abandoned the temple of the Lord, the God of their ancestors, and worshipped Asherah poles and idols. Because of their guilt, God's anger came on Judah and Jerusalem. And although the Lord sent prophets to the people to bring them back to him, and though they testified against them, they would not listen. 
Then the Spirit of God came on Zechariah, son of Jehoiada, the priest. Now, remember Jehoiada, right? Who is he? He's the one who saved. He preserved the life of Joash. He's the one who declared him king. This is now his son, Zechariah. And he stands before the people and says, this is what God says. Why do you disobey the Lord's commands? You will not prosper because you have forsaken the Lord. He has forsaken you. But they plotted against him. And by the order of the king, by the order of Joash, they stoned him to death in the courtyard of the Lord's temple. King Joash did not remember the kindness Zechariah's father Jehoiada had shown him, but killed his son, who said as he lay dying, may the Lord see this and call you to account. This is the same guy who started off so well. It's a tragic ending. What happened to Joash? We thought he was a good king. Again, go back to 2 Kings, if you would, in chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, and we get a clue about what's gone south with him. 2 Kings 12, 1 and 2. In the seventh year of Jehu, Joash became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 40 years. His mother's name was Zabiah. She was from Beersheba. Notice this, Joash did what was right in the eyes of the Lord all the years Jehoiada the priest instructed him. As long as Jehoiada, his spiritual mentor, his father figure was present, Joash did what was right. But as soon as he died, it all went bad. Joash at the death of Jehoiada, listened to the powerful and influential voices who wanted to go back to the old ways of worshiping the idols of their neighbors, and Joash puts up no resistance. Worshiping these other idols was good domestic and foreign policy. It was prudent because we cannot trust Yahweh fully alone to come through for us. Jehoiada's faith vibrant and strong, never became Joash's faith. Joash was riding on the coattails of Jehoiada's faith. It never penetrated into his own soul. Joash loved the man he could see, but he loathed the God he could not see. Joash respected the man he could see, but he rejected the God he could not see. How? could this happen? I mean, he grew up in church. He grew up surrounded with temple worship. Every day, abundant excitement to the senses, the smells of incense, glistening candles, golden articles, the songs of the choirs, the reading of the Torah. Yet when his mentor died, who appears to have been a restraining force on his life, he reverts to the classic ways of power and leadership in the ancient Near East. How could that happen? Well, let that question linger a little bit. And let's go to the second Joash or Jehoash. 
Turn to chapter 13. This is the king of Israel. Again, a different Jehoash. And I'm going to read his story or a story about him in chapter 13, beginning in verse 14. Okay. Now, Elisha had been, offering, had been suffering from the illness from which he would die. And Jehoash, king of Israel, went down to see him and wept over him. My father, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. Elisha said, get a bow and some arrows. And he did so. Take the bow in your hands, he said to the king of Israel. When he had taken it, Elisha put his hands on the king's hands. Open the east window, he said, and he opened it. Shoot, Elisha said, and he shot. The Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Aram. Elisha declared, you will completely destroy the Aramaeans at Aphek. Then he said, take the arrows, and the king took them. Elisha told him, strike the ground, and he struck it three times and stopped. And the man of God was angry with him and said, you should have struck the ground five or six times. Then you would have defeated Aram and completely destroyed it. But now you will only defeat it three times. All right. Yeah, that's a head scratcher, right? Okay. What? Something's missing here. Uh, there's some assumptions being made. Well, what, what's this mean? Well, We've already witnessed, or if you couldn't stay along, you can go back and read the passage. We've already seen in Jehoash, king of Israel, a very small measure of faith. And he did turn to Yahweh earlier when being attacked. And now there's a new threat. And Jehoash seeks out Elisha again. And we get a little bit of a sense that he views Elisha as their, his ace in the hole as the Arameans threaten again. Ah, he's our protector. Now, by all appearance, Elisha's past his prime. He's a dying man. And this brings Jehoash to despair. You know, when he calls, when he calls him Elisha, the chariots and horsemen of Israel, what is he saying? He's saying that Elisha is our protector but he's dying. But even though his faith is small and compromised, Elisha still predicts a victory for him. But the victory could have been more complete. If he had struck the ground more than three times, it was a very disappointing ending for Jehoash. There was victory, but not complete. Now, we have to make some assumptions about what's missing in our story. Either there were things communicated or things expected that are not written down for us. And perhaps it was a previous stated expectation. But however Elisha conveyed this expectation, Elisha perceives in the actions of Jehoash, only striking the ground three times, it reveals something about him that Elisha supernaturally sees, and it is this. It revealed a double-mindedness, it exposed a spiritual dullness, and it revealed a half-hearted belief, or maybe all of the above. It was less than enthusiastic, revealing a measure of doubt in Elisha's words. 
when I think of this story, when I thought of this story, this scripture in James came to my mind. And I think this scripture nails it on the head with regards to Jehoash. James 1, 5 through 7. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Now, there is a kind of doubt that arises from true wrestling in the pursuit of truth. And there is a kind of doubt that arises from willful disbelief or cynicism. The latter, I believe, is what Jehoash is guilty of. This verse, I think, makes clear what is unspoken. Now, to Jehoash's credit, at least he seeks out the man of God. But again, what is Elisha to him? He seems to be something between a man of God and a lucky charm to save his skin. And is this just a foxhole kind of faith? Save my skin, God, but I have no interest in giving you my heart. Now, if you listen to country music, you know who Jelly Roll is. And no, I'm not talking about jelly wrapped up in a cake. I'm talking about this guy. We can see him. Jelly Roll, yes, that is his name, not his real name. He's a very interesting character, what, quite a story. He is a troubled rapper turned country singer. He was an addict who got sober, and that is reflected in his music. His audience, as one writer said, are a hard scrabble common folk, and they often come up to him backstage in tears, talking about how his songs spoke to them, how their songs mirrored their life and helps them not feel so alone. Now, his recent songs reflect religious themes like confession, contrition, and gratitude. And I don't know where he's at. He, he remains sort of a mixed bag. On the positive side, he visits rehab facilities and detention centers gives hope to addict, addicts. He buys Thanksgiving meals from Cracker Barrel for those without. But while on tour, he admits he smokes too much pot. He cancels concerts because of depression. And he ends his concerts with a spew of expletives. But his latest song ties into the point I am making. It's called, God, I Need a Favor. And this song rose to the top quickly in the country charts. In it, he sings this. I only talk to God when I need a favor. And I only pray when I ain't got a prayer. And then he reproaches himself. And if you'll please pardon the mild cursing. So who the hell am I? Who the hell am I if I only talk to God when I need a favor? I don't deserve a savior. Well, a little slight diversion there for a cultural moment. But to the point, this is the foxhole faith of Jehoash and many Americans. And maybe some of you this morning, you only pray when you need a favor. You too are caught between faith 
and doubt. You see, when we have an undeveloped faith, in the moment of crisis, it leaves you unable to apprehend or to see what God is doing. You are caught between doubt and faith. And like Jehoash, you only strike the ground three times with half-hearted commitment. Joash of Judah, Jehoash of Israel, like Jimmy and James, what else do these two kings share besides a name? Here's what they lack. What they lack is personal inward conviction. They ride on the faith of someone else. Joash on the priest Jehoiada and Jehoash on the prophet Elisha. You ask the question, what is a conviction? Good question. The dictionary says a firmly held belief or opinion. And I have added to that definition, it is a truth that has been personally reflected on, internalized, and declared to self and others to be true. It becomes stronger as objections and doubts are sincerely weighed, considered, and overcome. Now the word convinced is used 15 times in the New Testament. And here's just a few examples from the Apostle Paul. Romans 8, 38 and 39, Paul wrote, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels or demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What a wonderful thing to be convinced of. 2 Corinthians 5, 14. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all, therefore all died. 2 Timothy 1, 12. That is why I am suffering as I am, yet there is no cause for shame because I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Again, a conviction is a firmly held belief. That's what's lacking in our kings. And what we see is the outcome of disappointment or even tragedy. And I think the question we have to ask ourselves today is, does the same thing happen to us? Is this still a relevant problem and challenge? What is the outcome of our faith when we trust more in our leaders than in God? Well, one, when our leaders fail or when their shiny armor is rubbed off by their humanity, some just simply stop following Jesus altogether. Others abandon the church. Some become paralyzed by disillusionment or just detached and, and numb. You know, when our leaders fail or when we see the humanity, when their shiny ar armor is, is rubbed off, you know, that can be a moment where we allow God to reconstruct our faith. Not deconstruct, but to reconstruct our faith from the ground up. 
Second thing, when we, our faith is a coattail faith, when we hit a crisis, if, we, if our faith has been in leaders, when we hit a crisis, coattail faith is never enough. Never enough. And some falter, and in that moment they abandon, some abandon the faith altogether because my faith did not work. My faith didn't work like it was supposed to. Or when crisis hits and we realize I've had a more uh, robust faith in my leaders than in God, when a crisis hits, we can recognize our shallow, undeveloped faith and begin to own it for ourselves. Now, why do we lack convictions? Just camping here for a moment. Why do we lack convictions? I think one reason is because of spiritual laziness. We're lazy. You might think that's offensive. Now, we have to differentiate from how we normally think about laziness. Jim Gaffigan has that very funny comic line about the snooze bar, asking, how many plans has the snooze bar destroyed, right? You hear the alarm, you wake up, I'm tired. You know what? I'm not going to the gym today. Snooze. Another eight minutes elapses. Eight minutes later, you hear the alarm and you say, you know what? I, I, I took a long shower yesterday. Snooze. <laughs> and then eight minutes later, the alarm goes off again and you are so tired. You don't want to get out of bed. And you say to yourself, I don't need my job. Snooze. <laughs> this is not the laziness I'm talking about. You can work very hard, be a 50 to 60 hour a week worker and still be spiritually lazy. It's work to develop convictions for yourself. It's work to study God's word. It's work to read books or interact with media that does not spoon feed you. It's work to think through your doubts. It's work and uncomfortable study, or it's work and it's uncomfortable to study the other side or troubling questions. It's a heck of a lot easier to let my leader do that for me. He's a good guy. She's a woman of integrity. Now, certainly, your spiritual leaders, your pastors, indeed have more time to think through these things. And it is also true that a certain level of trust in leaders is always a necessary ingredient for healthy churches. And I am not seeking to lay on you some expectation or the same expectation that I would have for my fellow pastors. That would be unjust and it would be unrealistic. But what I am trying to convey is a mentality, an orientation, a way of seeing reality that takes ownership for your faith and does not have an unhealthy dependence on leaders. And that is not spiritually lazy. It is not spiritually, spiritually lazy when it comes to you understanding what you believe 
and why you believe it. For example, this is what this will look like to illustrate it. Everyday believers, what I mean is not pastors. You're still a priest. But everyday believers, hungry to build their own faith, they will faithfully attend things like small group Bible studies, which many of you do. And they will read the Bible for themselves and on their own. They will eagerly attend spiritual formation classes and read books on their own, books that both challenge and stretch them. They will not be afraid of theology. They will, not, they will learn not only what to think from the Scripture as to what is true and lasting and wise, but Scripture will also teach them how to think how to discern, how to not be moved by overly emotional or short-sighted arguments, what the Bible calls prudence or discretion. You see, faith woven together with this kind of material will not easily unravel when a leader fails or a leader disappoints. This is one reason that we offer apologetic classes like Stand Firm. It's one reason why annually we have typically done a series of messages on apologetics. Now, if you're unfamiliar with that word, apologetics is simply the answers, that quite, that the, the answers to the challenges of our faith. And they help us grasp both what we believe and why we believe it. Friends, this is so critical in developing convictions. But all over the church of Jesus, I think particularly in America, believers are spiritually lazy. And they're allowing leaders to do all the thinking for them. And when that leader fails or when they disappoint, they don't know what to do. Now, I can tell you, inwardly, I'm still working on this. I'm still working on it. I'm a work in progress. If in your makeup, like me, you're, you were naturally a pleaser, that was true of me from my earliest years, and also true, true of my earliest years with a high degree of sensitivity to others' emotions. And if that's you out there, this is going to be a challenge for you, to challenge for me, to separate, in my mind, pleasing others and the emotional comfort that comes from their affirmation. To separate that from being firm in what I believe, even if it means that friendships are strained and not everyone is okay with me. You know, the Bible, Jesus himself promised that if we are followers of Jesus, we will experience the same rejection as he did. I mean, he said those challenging words. Friend, if they hated me, they'll hate you. It's part of our identification with Jesus. Listen, if you become a follower of Jesus and start doing good, not everybody is going to stand up and applaud you. And while pleasing others, listen, friends, it's not like it's an either or. Like pleasing others is a good and it's a healthy thing. It cannot become an ultimate thing. When it becomes an ultimate thing, it's an idol. And then it will own you. 
And idols are demanding and they're not forgiving, right? How true that is. You see, we cannot build convictions with integrity if our ultimate goal is not loving God and pleasing God first. Yeah, love your family. Don't make them an idol. Yes, love the people in your life. Love your neighbors. Enjoy pleasing them. But love God first. Love God supremely. So, in short, what am I saying here? What is the lesson? What am I encouraging you to do? Build convictions. Own your own faith. Don't be spiritually lazy. Okay, got it? Um, okay. <laughs> okay, I think you struck the ground about once there, maybe a half. Got it? All right, all right, that's better. Okay, one last vignette to lead us into communion. Look at chapter 13, verses 20 and 21. So Elisha died, and they buried him. Now bands of Moabites used to invade the land in the spring of the year. And as a man was being buried, behold, a marauding band was seen, and the man was thrown into the grave of Elisha. And as soon as the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. Now I find this whole setting a little comical. Oh, okay. Hey, it's spring, time for invading. Must be, you know, must have been something with, I don't know, harvest or whatever. I don't know, spring, I don't know. I, it, it reminds me of the old Bugs Bunny cartoon featuring a sheepdog protecting the flock of sheep and a coyote who tried to plunder the flock. I think their names were Sam and Fred, but I don't remember which was which. And they came to work together every day and they would clock in a little punch clock and begin their, their, you remember this? They began at eight o'clock and then they would terrorize each other all day. The sheepdog always winning. And then at the end of the work, they, they would clock out together. Good night, Sam. Good night, Fred. Lunch pails in hand. Every spring, right? Here we go. Here's our, here's our raid, spring raid. Anyway, these folks who lived on the border of Moab were simply trying to bury a friend that had passed. Now, in Israel here, the graves are not a hole in the ground, typically, but rather a cave. Elisha had been dead how long? Right? Long enough for his body to be decomposed. And what a surprise, after throwing him in, in an available grave in a rush, their friend reemerges. Hi, guys! <laughs> Very alive! Now, many have tried to dismiss this bizarre event to some kind of hocus-pocus or some strange superstition about bones having some kind of magic power. But I like what one scholar said about this. He wrote, we must not dismiss this account, for it shows that the word of God, which Elisha had so faithfully borne, was still mighty and powerful, even though the prophet himself had died. What comfort there was here for the captives. They must have often thought their nation was as good as dead, but because of the powerful word of God, their nation would live again. 
Not only did the resurrection breathe hope into the remnant of believers at this time, it reminded them that God answered prayer. God still answered prayer. Here's why. When Elisha, when Elijah handed the mantle of head prophet to Elisha, Elisha prayed, I want a double portion of your spirit, Elijah. And Elijah basically said, that's not for me to give, that's for God to give. In Elijah's life, there were seven major miracles that he did. In Elisha's life, there were 13. Until this one, the 14th. And I have no doubt that the community of prophets and the community of the remnant did their math and figured this out. God still answers prayer. He was long dead, and God performed the 14th miracle, exactly double of what he did through Elijah. And it demonstrated in the most earthy way. I mean, God just is so earthy. He is so earthy. He demonstrated in the most earthy way feasible that it is God's word, not the word of the prophet. It is God's power, not the power of the prophet, that heals and transforms. And lastly, this man's physical resurrection from the dead does what? It foreshadows another resurrection to come in the future. The resurrection of Jesus. As this man's resurrection gave Israel hope that God had not utterly forsaken them, so Jesus' resurrection breathed the same hope into you and to me. Uh, ben, you can come on up if you would. And ushers, um, if you would now, just go ahead and come on down and uh, begin releasing people to receive the elements. Uh, you can start releasing them as I uh, introduce it. And just hold on to the elements when you get them. Go, they can go, please start. They can go start. Just go ahead and hold on to the element when you receive it. Our faith, right, if we are honest enough to admit it, whether you've been following Jesus like me for a long time or you just started, our faith, if we are honest enough to admit it, can endure seasons of spiritual laziness, mine has, half-heartedness, mine has, and spiritual dullness, oh my goodness, mine has. But the reason we're taking the bread and the juice today is there was another man that came, Jesus. And in his life, he was totally obedient. He was ever wholehearted, and he was perpetually spiritually alive and perceptive and present in the moment. His righteousness makes him worthy to die in our place. And in that exchange, he forgives our sins, but also shares his righteousness with us. And his resurrection proved that he was worthy, that his sacrifice was acceptable to the Father. And friends, please realize this. Without the resurrection, there is no gospel. Without the resurrection, there is no forgiveness. There are no new heavens and no new earth for us to share in. 
1 Corinthians 15, 17 says, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. While people are coming down, and if you're coming down, I want you to participate as well. But I'd like us here, before we begin to sing and to take the elements, I'd like us to together to read one of the earliest Christian confessions written. This confession may have been written in the 50s or early 60s. It was very likely a part of the worship service of the early church when they gathered together. When they gathered, they would often recite creeds or faith, confessions of faith. This is essentially a this I believe statement. And in a this I believe statement, we are saying it's not just my leaders that believe this. It's not just my friends that believe this. It's not just my parents that believe this. It's not just my spouse that believes this. I believe it. Could you put it on the, go ahead and put it on the uh, screen there, Tyler. Thank you. This is 1 Corinthians 8, 5 and 6. And will you read it? Let's read it together as a body of believers. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live, and there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. Amen. Amen. 